Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 535 of them now. <laughs> the number keeps going up. So if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and check out the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and you feel like supporting it in any amount, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. My guest this week is Asira. Welcome, Asira. Thank you, Rick. It's lovely to be here with you. I think we're going to really enjoy this conversation. Asira is down in Sydney, Australia, and here's a short bio of her. She brings a deep understanding of indigenous, ancient, and universal wisdom. She bridges the gap between the overwhelming challenges we face in the world today and our spiritual journey. As a powerful advocate for conscious change, Asira is highly engaged in today's social issues. Her enlightened commentary assists us to navigate the divisive worlds of politics, climate change, mental health, and beyond. And I really like the fact that you talk about that stuff because, to me, spirituality has always been intertwined with the world and society and what we see in the world. I consider whatever condition the world to be in to be a reflection or manifestation of the collective state of consciousness that all 8 billion of us are in. And if we want to change the world, we've got to change that state of consciousness. And then when we do, the world will naturally change, which is not to say we don't also have to work on things in the world. But if we do that from, what was it, Einstein or somebody said that if we try to solve a problem from the same level of consciousness at which it was created, nothing's going to change. Exactly. That's so true. Yeah. Look, I think it's really interesting that in principle and truth, being spiritual is about recognizing what is, bringing ourselves back into a, a conscious relationship with that. However, ironically, very often the spiritual traditions have gone about that by a way of removing ourselves from the real world and the worldly events. And I see that sadly, in many ways, that's contributed to the challenges that we're facing now today, that there, there has been quite a schism between the quest to be more spiritual or open-hearted compared to surviving, let alone succeeding in the world. And I see that many spiritual seekers find that very challenging. Well, you know, you use the phrase the real world, and a lot of spiritual teachings have emphasized that the world isn't real. And that might be a useful <laughs> teaching if you're a recluse. And many spiritual traditions, the custodians of those traditions, say Shankaracharya's tradition and so on, were recluses. And so they emphasized that value of the world is Maya and so on. But it's really not an appropriate teaching for people trying to live in the world, for householders, which is who the vast majority of people are spiritual seekers or, or otherwise. So a more integrative, holistic, all-encompassing approach needs to be available for the vast majority of us. Absolutely. And I think the word you just used there, approach, is really key to this because it's not so much that the world is not real. It's the way we perceive it to be is not real. And that results in either our awareness and relationship with the true nature of existence, if we see it 
for its true nature or we're in conflict with it because we're caught in a mental construct that is counter to the way reality actually is occurring. Let's play with that for a minute. And let's take a a simple thing like a tree. Okay, we perceive it one way, a bird perceives it another way, a cow perceives it another way, a bat perceives it another way. And yet there is something there that all these beings kind of are perceiving, but despite the fact that they're all perceiving it vastly differently. So what is the real tree? (laughs) Well, I think this is one of the issues for the human mind is that we're constantly seeking to make something an absolute and to pin it down in defined terms instead of experience the phenomenon. And I guess, generally speaking, most sages who are awakening or experience a greater awakening arrive at that recognition that we can't actually put things in boxes. We cannot make things absolute. We can only have an experience of it. And once we have a direct experience of it, then we realize how transcendent, transient, imminent, and existing and non-existing it all is. And then we just have a relationship with that rather than trying to prove something right or wrong or this or that. We just have a a direct experience with it. It seems to me that one um, precious aptitude humans have is the possibility of back to the tree again, of apprehending the essential nature of the tree through first having apprehended the essential nature of themselves and then having that mature to the point where it is seen that everything is that. And in addition to that, one would naturally have the the bandwidth that a human nervous system is capable of. You're not going to see infrared like some birds supposedly can or the, you know other aspects of the perception that other animals might have the capability of, but you do have that ability to see something that is universal and beyond human perception, which is more universal than the perception of any individual being, which is the essential nature of things. True. Interestingly, my observation and insights are that the human has radically lost that capacity, that we we had that capacity much more actively engaged historically, you know, when we were living at, at one with nature. So Indigenous people tend to have a much deeper wiring of this greater expansive perceptual field. Yeah. And that's because as Indigenous people, we're plugged into the whole system, the cosmos, the inner self, nature, every living thing. And all of those things are an extension of ourself and are also manifesting ourself, which means that we have an incredibly wide open radius of awareness. And I see that there's a direct uh, similarity between a spiritual seeker, a sage or a Buddha and an indigenous state of awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You wouldn't find too many indigenous people who had been, who, who had retained their traditional values, who would be materialists, who would regard the, the world as dumb matter without any sentience, without any divinity inherent in it. Absolutely. That, 
just does not occur in the Indigenous mindset. And this is actually a key point that I think we'll elaborate on in our conversation because we're going to be talking about the state of the world. And I think to a great degree, primarily the state of the world, such as it is, the problematic nature of our current situation is a reflection or a manifestation of the materialist paradigm being predominant ever since modern science kind of took over. You know, the rejection of the notion that there's anything in a rock or uh, anything divine or conscious about the planet itself and all, all kinds of other examples we could cite. Sure, yeah. And um, I'd like to add to that that uh, not only is it a materialistic basis that we have created now and most people are living within that mindset, but also it's a separatist mindset. So there's a profound distinction between Indigenous mind and living compared to modern human mind and living. Mm. And the Indigenous was one of connectivity, wholeness, interconnectedness, whereas the modern human's mind is one of separation, isolation, superiority, possession, division, etc. And actually materialism arises out of that. Yes, you're right. But fundamentally, the notion of separating out, right? Yeah, exactly. Of course, quantum physics has shown, and a hundred years ago it showed, that you can't do that, that the observer actually influences the observed and that everything is more inextricably interconnected than would appear. Absolutely. Let's learn more about you, and then we'll, we'll kind of loop back and, and talk about all kinds of things. You've, you've written a book that I only had the time to read a chapter of called Buddha on the Dance Floor, which sounds a little bit like Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, perhaps yeah, that, interestingly, doesn't it? Yeah, perhaps that title was inspired by the same thought. In, in our case, it was the thought that in this day and age, you will, you're likely to encounter enlightened people in ordinary circumstances. Sure. Whereas I was pointing towards this notion that Buddha consciousness doesn't exist outside of the dance of life, you know, okay. that actually everything is the dance of life. And if we want to remove ourselves from the everyday dance, mm-hmm then we actually cut off our opportunity to recognize the Buddha within, within everything. Uh-huh. But that book, Buddha on the Dance Floor, is kind of an autobiography and uh, up till the age of 30 of mm-hmm. your life. And um, as I say, I, I only got to read one chapter, and that chapter was pretty horrific, uh, and you're going to tell us about that. But why don't you just uh, take some time now to sketch out, you know, who you are and and what has led you to do what you're now doing. Sure. Well, I guess I came in fairly well plugged in, to put it simply. So I experienced a direct awareness of the interconnection of all things. So my experience was energy. I was able to see and feel the energy of everything. As a young child. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, of course, As a result of that, because I was seeing things in that way and feeling and hearing things in that way, I wasn't behaving in a typical manner. So I was considered somewhat odd and strange and complicated and difficult and wacko to the point that I, you know, was even considered at 
some stage whether I needed to be in a mental institution because I would be talking to things that no one could see. I, I would say things that no one could understand. And it led to a lot of confusion. And aside from that, as we know, most families have their difficulties. Most humans, most people have their struggles. And, and my family was certainly having its struggles emotionally. And I suffered quite a deal of abuse. So from quite a young developing age, I had this, I guess it was a, a clash between these states of being completely connected with everything and the awareness of oneness and this immeasurable love with and for everything and yet having the experience of something contrary to that played out towards me and all around me. And that created a, a really interesting dynamic in me because on the one hand, I experienced a, a transcendence and an acceptance of the way things were. But on the other hand, it tended to evoke a great sense of rebellion in me. So I, I became incredibly rebellious. I didn't want to be put in a box. I didn't want to take on the ideas and beliefs that people were trying to impose on me. And uh, that coupled with a fair amount of abuse that I was experiencing led to a point where, well, I decided I didn't want to be in that environment anymore. I left home. How old? I was 15 and a half. So, yeah, I was very young. I moved from people's homes from one place to another, always looking for somewhere to, to um, stay that felt welcoming and belonging and accepting and safe. And all the while I'd been having this recurring dream that I was being hunted down and then violated, basically, raped and almost murdered. And it was so vivid. And uh, by this point, I was completely homeless, didn't have anywhere to stay. So I would be sitting up late at night in a cafe and a couple came in one night and decided that this young woman, you know, young girl shouldn't be sitting there all by herself, asked me what was happening. And I ended up back at their place as a result of that because they said, look, you can come and stay with us. And when I woke up in the morning, I discovered that I was living basically or staying in a home that was uh, a drug ring. There were people coming and going who were dealing and using drugs and and yet everyone was completely accepting of everyone and they were all being really friendly and kind to me. And, and so I felt a degree of welcome. Uh, however, there was a man living there who took quite a strong shine to me and, and was basically following me around everywhere, trying to involve me in everything, to the point that he started to make advances on me after a period of time, which weren't in my interests, and consequently, because he couldn't get what he wanted, he proceeded to violate me extremely abusively, and my life was on the edge, literally. So, you just yeah. skimmed over in two sentences what took you quite a few pages to describe, but basically, he practically killed you. Huh? 
He yeah. beat you to a pulp, broke your nose, beat you for several hours, and you nearly died. Right. And the interesting thing is, and this is an example of what I was saying before, this this contrast between the reality of what was happening at the physical level compared to the experience I held as consciousness. So in the middle of that, as this man was, he was literally trying to kill me and stating it, that he would absolutely kill me. I was not going to get out of there alive. My life was on such a thin edge that I knew if I did not harness every degree of my conscious presence, I would die. And so I completely focused absolute one-pointed awareness. And in that moment, I literally became everything. I became the room. I became him. I became the space. I was the, the body being murdered. I was everything. And in that, I was able to see that man's soul and consciousness. And the reason he was doing what he was doing was because he was so disconnected. He was so broken and without love. And that in that woundedness, he was so desperate for connection and so hurt from not having had it that he went about it in a way of violation. That was his own violation that he was acting out. And in seeing that, I just felt the most incredible, immeasurable love for this soul. It was endless, this love, just a wish and a prayer that he could remember and know that he is loved, that he is lovable, that he is loved. And literally in that moment, the entire room lit up and it was literally like a thousand angels were in the room. And that man, he looked up and he saw this light and he dropped to his knees and he said, oh, my God, what have I done? I've killed an angel. He pleaded for my life to be saved. He, he literally had an awakening. So he picked up my body, called for emergency and without going into, you know, too many of those details, he realised what he had done. And so on the one hand, he'd had an awakening and, you know, the murderer literally became the saviour. On the other hand, he realised what he'd done and that he was in big trouble, so he did a runner. He did a what? Now, a runner. He ran he away. He ran. Oh, okay. I somehow, yeah. when I read it, it sounded to me like after he made that phone call or you made that phone call, he started beating you again. Yeah, he's, he smashed my head again into the wall. Uh-huh, right. Yeah. So he took off. I ended up in a coma. Now, the second insight that came out of that was, so there, there I was, the body in the hospital in a coma. My family's being called. I'm seeing and experiencing everything as consciousness still, you know, watching the body in the hospital room. My family comes in and my father and my mother are standing there absolutely lamenting. My father just crying and crying. And I could hear everything he was thinking. He was thinking, my God, what have I done? I've never told my daughter I love her. I may never get the chance again. And in that instant, I had this, I don't even know how to describe it. It was a timelessness where I saw every previous incarnation and the 
purpose of this incarnation, why I had come here and that I hadn't finished yet, it was all pieced together. I was able to see the whole thing and realise, all right, I better get back to it. (laughs) I've, I've got something more to do. And so I slipped back into the body and, you know, through this incredibly swollen, broken face, I just opened my eyes and my face twitched and my father saw it and he just broke down in tears, sobbing and told me he loved me for the first time in my life. And what I realised consequently through that experience was that is the root of all suffering in humanity, that fundamentally we are love and we are oneness. Our true nature is all connected, but that we are living in such a way that we are so disconnected We are so fractured from our true nature and from love that we don't know how to love. We don't know how to act in love and we don't know how to be connected. And as I saw that, I realised, well, this is the entire human quest, is for us to be reconnected, is for us to reawaken to love and to know that every single violation that is happening on the planet is because of that wounding. It's because of that disconnection from our true nature, from our true self, from life, from the universe, from each other, and therefore from love. And you can't really sort of blame anybody, I don't think, because disconnection has been the norm. It's We're born to disconnected parents and then we become one ourselves and so on. It's just this hereditary kind of tradition that gets handed on. And there has been, for the most part, no simple means whereby people can awaken. It hasn't been offered in the school systems. So it's just been this kind of vicious circle that's that's been going on and things have been getting worse and worse to a point where I don't think they can get much worse without something changing. Yeah, yeah. And, And Here we are. This is where we are right here now today in the world. You know, society is collapsing. We are seeing crisis, endemic crisis in every single arena of our life. And people are aware of this. People are waking up to this and people are angry about this and people are confused and afraid and feeling helpless and lost and passionate as well. You know, there's, there's such a magnitude of energy behind the crisis that is happening, um, yet mostly we seem to be struggling without a clear compass. I heard you say something today as I was driving over to the next town to have my stitches taken out. Uh, I was listening to some of your recordings. And one thing you said is that the thing about disconnection is the more disconnected you become oh interesting on my screen right now i'm seeing airs rock i have these various screensavers that keep changing (laughs) that's in australia the more we become disconnected the more we suffer and the more we suffer the the stronger the you could almost think of it as a rubber band effect the stronger the pull will be to to get us back to connection absolutely yes so it's kind of uh foolproof in a way that we cannot escape our true nature because our true nature is interconnected oneness and wholeness. And if we live contrary to that with beliefs that counter that, 
then absolutely we spiral into greater and greater conflict, greater and greater suffering. And the more we suffer, the more we desire freedom from that suffering until ultimately it pushes us to search for a way out that we have not been looking for before because we've tried everything. Mm. So here we are now. This is what we're faced with. Have you ever had the thought, considering what you went through in your early years and culminating in this near murder, have you ever had, there's a saying, which is uh, regarding spirituality and people who are going to awaken in this life, that when the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. Have you ever had the thought that um, you just somehow took on a a shitload of, of karma in a really short amount of time in order to just kind of get it over with or something so you could shift into something much more beneficial for everyone. Sure. That's a really interesting take, a really interesting perspective on it. And and I guess from one angle, it could absolutely be that from another angle. One of the insights I had following that event was actually the collaboration that his soul and my soul had conspired to enter into that experience because he was seeking to reawaken to love and I was seeking to demonstrate absolute love. Yeah, a lot of people say that who, who look into sort of past lives and life between lives and near-death experiences and all that. There's this whole orchestration of the coming life mm. that takes place between significant players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... What happened to him? Did that, he end up facing some kind of justice? Yeah, well, that was interesting too, because there I was just having this absolute love for his soul and recognizing that there must be accountability for one's actions. You know, karma is karma. There's going to be some repercussion. And of course, because he had run away, there was a case and a warrant out for his arrest. And uh, he was under special investigation search um, because no one could find him. And uh, two years later, when I was more or less getting on with my life, I saw him walking on the other side of the road and it kind of really threw me. And I told my mother and the dilemma I was in that on the one hand, feeling this incredible understanding and compassion and, and even beyond forgiveness, because I saw, I understood how and why he acted the way he did. And on the other hand, knowing, well, There needs to be some kind of accountability. And my mother said, look, you know what you need to do. And I did know. I I knew I needed to report him because he obviously was not right to be able to act in that way and it could be a danger to others. So I contacted the department and they called the next day and they said, look, we've got some, well, we've got some good news for you. And I thought, well, that's very strange. They said, well, we've tracked him down and he's no longer living. He literally died the day before. He dropped dead on the factory floor. He died of an aneurysm, which is very interesting because the the most damage he did was actually to my head. He beat my head severely. So he was no longer living. Since you do have some rather extraordinary perceptions of the of things things that people ordinarily don't see have you had any kind of communication with his soul since his death yes i did and it was 
I guess, a continuum of what I was saying before, this insight into the collaboration that there had been a quest for his soul to awaken and that he was going to take on a life to make amends for that, that he was now awake to love and the opportunity to live and act and recreate from love. So his next life would be to try to make some amends, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so for myself, I saw that whilst we can conceptually know the power of love and the relevance of love, it really isn't a truth unless we have a direct experience of it. And so the life experiences I have had really are a foundation of direct experience, direct insight into the true nature of ourself and life and um, how we can actually transcend the usual conflicts that are existing in our world. I mean, if, if I can make that connection and see the relevance of that man's soul despite the magnitude of his abuse to me, I'm human, you're human, we can all arrive at that place. We are all able to reconnect to that essence of love and awareness that we recognise ourselves in each other and we recognise the woundedness and we recognise the same quest. I'm thinking of Christ, as you say this, who said, you know, as he was being crucified, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And it was absolutely that for me. So there you were. You were still a teenager when this happened, and um, <laughs> you're you're yeah. in the hospital. Must have taken you quite a while to even be able to get out of the hospital. And so, you know, how did you proceed from there? How did you kind of discover if you hadn't really discovered it a, a spiritual path and pursue it? What sort of what teachers have you had? I mean, how how did you get to be doing what you're doing now? Well, interestingly, my recovery was considered miraculous and I understand once again that that was because of the love the vibration of love and freedom when I returned to the body the most prominent thing in my awareness was I am unbreakable I am the infinite energy life love I remain forever whole and that vibration seemed to result in a miraculous recovery to the point that I have very, very little visible evidence of that abuse. And yet, usually you would see an incredibly scarred human, you know, even just physically, let alone mentally and emotionally. And so my recovery was incredibly almost instant. And I recognised the process of healing that was, I guess, underway then for the family that, you know, it was like an acceleration for the family to go through some kind of awakening and and healing. And from there, actually, my conscious connection only deepened and expanded to the point that people were literally strangers, were literally coming up to me and asking me for guidance. And I was having constant interdimensional experiences and states, whether it would be, you know, premonistic and um, kind of aware or operating on other levels to the point that I was very, very active with a group of yogis 
on some other level. So I would just sit and go into these states or when I was asleep, I would be awakefully active with this group of yogis. And we'd sit in this circle and and there'd be these discussions of what was happening with life, with humanity, and all very, you know, metaphysical, philosophical interactions. This was the sort of thing that was going on when I was a child and everyone just thought I was loopy. <laughs> You're just picking right up where you <laughs> left off. Because, and I would be like, I'd start talking in some unknown language and it turned out I had actually been chanting huh. in Sanskrit. This is actually um, when you were a child, you mean? Child. You would do that. Yeah. So anyway, within the circle, there was one particular or two particular lamas who were constant. One I would literally travel with and be in different places with consistently. And uh, he visited me in one of these states and told me to be prepared that he was coming to meet me. Now, this is the sort of thing that a psychiatrist would usually say, oh, you've got schizophrenia, right? Yeah. Who cares what they say? Yeah. So, So this is what's going on, right? My mother, in the meantime, has met a woman who's really spiritually interested and she starts realizing even more the spiritual nature of me, that there's something not usual about me. And I start to tell her friend all about these dreams and visitations. She says, oh, you should go to Buddha house. And as soon as she said it, it was like a bolt of energy went through me. It was like, yes, true. So I got up, I opened up, and those days there were phone books, yeah, right? I actually still have some in the closet. Still have some. <laughs> they still have so, numbers in them. I opened up the phone book and I kid you not, literally the page that it opened on, there was Buddha House. So I called and I started, I was falling out of myself. I couldn't talk fast enough, telling this monk on the other end of the line, everything that had been happening said, you must come, you have to come here. And there are lamas coming. That was in Adelaide. Adelaide, okay. I grew up in Adelaide. Right, right. So I go to this Buddha House And this monk is telling me that these lamas are due to arrive within a matter of a a couple of weeks. Well, two weeks later, this lama turns up on the doorstep and he's the lama that I had been traveling with and visiting on these other levels my whole life. And we just laughed and cried and looked at each other like as being this person that he had been traveling with. Cool. Absolutely. Wow. And we just hugged and laughed and cried. So it turns out my mother found out from one of the women who was very involved in this Buddha center that the lamas had literally come to get me and to take me back. And so then I spent time with the Tibetan um, Buddhist fraternity. I was initiated, ordained by His Holiness Dalai Lama. I spent private time with him. So you went to Tibet and, or to India? Uh huh. Okay. India, Nepal. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I shouldn't and, say Tibet because um, they were all out of there by then. <clears throat> right. Yeah. yeah. I spent time up on the border. And um, so that was a period of preparation for me. It was. You know, I, I had been praying for people that could understand me. You know, people who were like me, I'd been praying for that because I just felt like I, 
I must have taken a wrong turn. I, what have I done? I've come in at the wrong place at the wrong time. What did I do? T- took a wrong turn in the universe somewhere. Anyway, so that was almost like a resetting for me that it allowed me the time to put things back together in actuality instead of as my own states of awareness and experience where everyone else thought I was just mad. So it was like a, a period of like confirmation and, yeah, settling in. I don't, I don't really know how to yeah, explain you just, you it. You fell in with some kindred souls who understood you. Yeah. It wasn't really a learning something new. It was a settling back into place yeah. in the world. Huh and a preparation to then move forward with what I am here to bring. And so that's what set in motion a more official trail of my service. You know, they told me ultimately I needed to go back to the West and serve as a guide, a teacher, et cetera, for others. Someone named Debbie from Boulder, Colorado asked, would you describe your traumatic experience with your attacker as a near-death experience? And Obviously, yes, right? And um, uh-huh. and you mentioned that in that NDE, you had experiences of past lives. So uh-huh. did you experience past lives as a Tibetan Lama or some such thing? Yes, I recalled the incarnations that I had had in the East as already an adept, that I recalled the yogic practices that I had mastered which was why I was already spontaneously practicing yoga and meditating as a kid, etc. Yeah, I don't think people um, just come in and do that stuff out of the blue without some background. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of NDEs, I mean, have you ever heard of Anita Morjani? No. She's this woman who um, I've interviewed who had uh, cancer and was on the verge of dying. She was, it was down to her last few hours and she had all these lemon-sized tumors in her system and she could only... She was too weak to hold her head up, and um, she was down to about 80 pounds. And um, she had this near-death experience, and she went to the other side and had all these amazing experiences and then made the choice to come back, as people often do, uh, probably everyone does, who has had an NDE. Like you, she healed up within a couple of weeks. The tumors went away, and she regained weight, and she's been cancer-free ever since. She travels all over the world talking about this. But it's interesting how dipping into that profound state can bring about such radical healing when you come back. Totally. And my observation of that is because in that wide open frequency of consciousness, it's a much higher energy vibration and it is actually cohesive and connected. So, you know, those of you who know NLP, you know, the the muscle testing programming. Yeah. Yeah. And all the muscle testing method. Right. We know Basically, why that works is because there is a vibration of truth compared to what is not true, right? And so when we are aligned with what is true, it is absolutely cohesive. And so that's power. That's whole vital energy. Everything is plugged in and connected. And so that's actually what happens in an NDE. It's what happens when we are in a state of samadhi or when we're in a, you know, a really deep meditative state, or we have epiphany, we're literally plugging back into the whole field of truth and consciousness. So it's power, and everything has the capacity to restore itself when we're in that state of vibration. Yeah. 
So how many years now have you been teaching or serving in this kind of capacity? 30 plus. Oh, wow. Long time. And mostly Australia and and online? Oh, no. Internationally And traveling around? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And what have you actually been teaching? Those who work with you, what do they learn? So I would say pretty well for most of the last 30 years, I've been holding a space for people to reconnect with the true essence of self. So to deepen in awareness, to use the natural tools and physiology that we have that is able to access those deeper states. And it's from that that we're able to see clearly, we're able to feel and experience what is. And so I've delivered a vast body of teachings which guide the way to restore that connection anything and everything from you know basic meditation tools and principles through to deepening self-reflection and how to experience really our connection with the whole of life so all of those words there's actually a whole library uh, of that work in the online platform that I've created the awakening place but you know, there's layers and layers to those teachings. And so I've, I've been doing regular satsangs, one-day, two-day programs, workshops. I've delivered programs in as many different places. For example, like Africa, I delivered a, a program to the, the refugee camps there. So it's quite broad-reaching. But now I'm really focusing in on this bridging the gap between the underlying spiritual principles and what is happening in the world today. And particularly I'm drawing upon my own Indigenous heritage and direct experience of what it is to be Indigenous and an understanding of the universal principles that do underpin all Indigenous people. So that's very much my focus now in terms of what we might call teachings is how to reestablish a new cultural narrative that helps us unify, first and foremost. And secondly, how do we actually navigate our way forward in a world that is so fractured? What do we already know and what can we draw upon that is going to help us in that process? When you say Indigenous, um, so you have a fair amount of Aboriginal ancestry. That's what you're alluding to there. And... um, in terms of the world as we find it, you and I have mentioned this several times over the course of our conversation so far. And I don't know if most people in the world, it seems to almost be an assumption among spiritual people that things are really getting intense and we're looking at possibly huge cataclysmic shifts in society. But I don't think most people realize it that acutely unless you're right in the thick of it. I mean, people who live in the fires of Australia, for instance, must realize that things are not normal. But, you know, there's kind of this out of sight, out of mind mentality that many people go through. In fact, I was telling my friend who is probably at this moment evacuated, her house may be burning as we speak because I got a a notice just before we started that it was, there was a fire a kilometer away from her house there in in New South Wales. Gosh, I was telling her that, we haven't even heard about the fires on the news lately. It's, it was a big thing a month ago, 
And nowadays it's the impeachment and Kobe Bryant and, you know, this and that and all kinds of other news events. And it's like, okay, fires, that's an old, that's old news. You know, so that's still going on, but we've already covered it. So we don't need to cover it. That almost seems to be the attitude. And then again, there's Syria, you know, and like a yeah, horrible situation there. And there's the um, Rohingya people in, in Myanmar and all these situations in the world that make the news and then fade from our awareness, but they don't, you know, they continue to happen for the people who are in the thick of it. And it almost seems like more and more of those things are going to get more strident in their call to us that something needs to be done to the point where we won't be able to ignore them. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Well, it'll be tolling right in our neighborhood. Yeah, and and unfortunately what we're pointing to here are some of the patterns of human nature. And and it is typical that the human makeup is to stay comfortable we don't like change you know and that's part of our hard wiring for survival we stay with what we know and what we're comfortable with and i see that that underlies one of the strongest reasons as to why we're not changing and acting despite the warning signs because until it is right in our own camp we actually really don't relate to it strongly enough which is actually ridiculous <laughs> but at the same time it's it's part of the human nature and this tendency also for things to subside is you know oh it's passe now like you say because we're overfeeding our mind you know when we repeat 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 we saturate our capacity to digest that information again and and it gets filed away you know we we put it in the out of sight box Mm. and what i'm also observing is that these human tendencies are being directly deliberately used by people who are dominating and controlling our platforms of information and controlling our societal decisions and systems. And that may sound a little like I'm starting to veer down the track of conspiracy theory, but this is reality. Well, it really this does. Is, and this is and re- some politicians are quite masterful at it. You know, they know how to play into that mindset, take advantage of it, and, you know, mm-hmm. get people to think in their narrow groove and to ignore quite compelling evidence to the contrary (laughs) yeah Uh, distraction and deflection and uh, you know for example facebook it's admitted and it's been proven that they used psychological research to develop devices that are addictive and distracting yeah i've heard that we're living in this giant echo chamber which has magnified some of the least conscious human attributes and the makeup of human behavior. And that's a very challenging thing because the general demeanor of the average human already is out of alignment with a more conscious self. And so you add to that the fact that we're living in this world of like a a giant echo chamber that's just feeding back all of the behaviors and conditions that create that to start with, and that effect multiplies. Well, if you're in alignment, you wouldn't be so susceptible to those kinds of tactics. Well, one would like to hope so. One of the things that I remind a lot of my audience about, though, is that most of what's happening in the, the human 
experience is at the subconscious level. There's a whole lot of processing that's going on that we're not even aware of. Uh, and that happens automatically. And so we're transceivers. We're transmitting and receiving information, gazillions of yeah. bits of data <laughs> that we're not even aware of. And the subconscious is processing it. And what happens is that the most compelling data takes the most immediate reference of attention. And so there's an energy that corresponds with that, and that is, um, you know, when it is fear-based, when it is pain-based, when it is, um, you know, it's a dominating energy, it actually sparks off how do I put that? It's like a synapse of mirroring. And so those parts of one's own brain that have those references are sparked into activity. And this is why I remind my audience, look, you can be practicing meditation. You can be so deeply committed and have the intention for mindfulness and aware living. And we are living in a world that you are being bombarded every single day with subliminal messages and an environment of unconscious mindsets and behaviours. And that's that pulls the subconscious into that mode. And so it takes an incredible amount of vigilance, far more vigilance in today's environment than in the time of Buddha, far more. Yeah, life was simpler, I suppose. In some senses, we are in a lot better shape. You could die of a toothache back then, you know, because they didn't know how to deal with it. But on the other hand, we're being bombarded and the pace of change is, is increasing so rapidly. If you, you look at statistics about the doubling of knowledge and it's like this exponential curve and the, yeah, the doubling yeah. of information. I mean, the very fact that you and I are having this conversation, we couldn't have done this 20 years ago in terms of the technology. So we're making good use of something, but the same, very same technology is being used to propagate, disseminate disinformation, to feed people with pornography, to do all kinds of things that are not in, in their best interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I often reflect on this dilemma, the irony of it, that, you know, I'm utilizing this platform and, yes, there's benefit and the design of the platform is counter to awakening. So the design of the platform itself, and when I say platform, I'm the, referring the whole, to all social you, media. The whole thing, yeah. Yeah, social media platform. Its design is specifically dualistic. It is designed to polarize. And when you engage with a medium that is designed to polarize, you go with the drama. So drama draws our attention, which pulls us into the least conscious content. So it takes incredible presence and vigilance to move against that stream. They call it clickbait. Mm-hmm. All these things flash at you and, and it's like, ooh, this looks tasty. I think I'll click there. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you get sucked into some yeah. ridiculous story about <laughs> something or other. And it's just mindless. It's distractions. Yeah. It's of no true value. And This leads to one of the biggest issues we're facing today, and especially with the advent of AI, where we're heading with artificial intelligence, and actually our world is becoming more and more dominated by data, and that is that humans are losing a sense of value and relevance. And I think most people don't even realise that within four to five years, we're going to lose 
between 40 to 80% of our current existing jobs. And when that happens, and we're talking that is looming, we are already experiencing a value crisis already. Why do you think there's such a magnitude of depression? The statistics of depression in developed countries is phenomenal. It's off the charts. And underpinning that is a loss of value and meaning. Right. So you then add <laughs> and to drug it. addiction as a consequence and yeah, all, you know, of, all of these and, yeah. symptoms. Yeah. The thing is, there's all a silver these... lining in this because most jobs are crap. You know, who would want to do that all day? <laughs> <laughs> and if society could be structured, and it could be, but if it is structured such that people can utilize their le- the leisure time that they will be having to do spiritual practice, to do something constructive, then, wow, there could be this real flourishing in society. Part of the whole metamorphosis we're going through, I think, is going to involve a a complete restructuring of our values, of our economic systems, our political systems, all that stuff is completely upside down and has to be reshuffled and made, made sensible. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of my central campaigns now that I've been developing um, is the, the, the regeneration campaign is recognising we're all part of this generation, doesn't matter what age we, we are or which background we have, you know, which part of the world we come from. We're part of this generation here now that is faced with simultaneously incredible crisis but incredible opportunity. And we are all recognising we want to restore reshape, reawaken, remember, remodel, revision, reimagine our society. And that that is our quest. And this is my message about this to um, you know the world at large is this is why spirituality is so relevant. Because our spiritual journey is the very thing that plugs us into greater imagination greater possibility and a different level of thinking. You commented right at the beginning that Albert Einstein famously stated, no problem can be solved at the same level at which it was created. And that's what spirituality provides us with, is a connection and a way to start accessing a different level of connection and imagining. And without that, what happens is the echo chamber, we just keep recreating our history We keep reverting to the same old beliefs, the same old models, the same old systems. And you know what they say about doing the same thing and expecting different results. Insanity. I think Einstein said that too, apparently. And crisis and opportunity. You probably heard that thing about the Chinese pictograph for the word crisis contains a symbol symbol for opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's recognized in nature that where, you know, whenever there appears to be an event of crisis in nature, it's in biology, it's called podation. It's this dynamic that happens where it's incredible chaos, but within it is this acceleration of reorganization in order to birth something new. And there's also in in nature the phenomenon of phase transition where a system goes through a turbulent phase as it shifts from one state to another. Water is an yeah. example. You know, uh, Water can be getting hotter and hotter, and you don't see really much happening with it. And uh, then as it reaches the boiling point, all of a sudden it gets you know, really obviously turbulent uh-huh. and then turns to steam, which is a whole different state. Yep, yep, exactly. Same thing. And so you know, if we think about it then, 
isn't that going to happen at every level, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? And I think spiritual seekers are oftentimes really, really hoping and wishing that, you know, if you take on this spiritual journey, oh, it's all going to become lovely yeah, and unicorns comfortable. And and, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's all going to be sweet and shiny. And like hell it is. It's, you know, yeah. it's like it turns everything inside out, upside down. And uh, it's through that that we get to reawaken or reframe ourselves. Yeah. Several interesting points here. This is this is a great conversation. On the one hand, I've heard people say things somewhat like you just said that what might scare people away from spirituality. Oh, you know, you get into that, all hell's going to break loose. Your life was going to be the same. You know, nothing's going to work for you anymore. You'll probably lose your relationships and all this stuff. But on the other hand, I don't know about you, but I think I do know about you and about me, that spirituality <laughs> has been such a godsend. I mean, the quality of my life is so vastly different than it was before I got into this stuff, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. And sure, yeah, there have been growing pains and things that I've had to let go. I mean, after I learned to meditate, I basically dropped all my friends and just walked with a dog every day until I found new friends several months later. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so things are going to change, but you won't regret it in retrospect. No, and I, I guess the most important perspective on that is that the upheaval is short-term and temporary, and the benefits are long-term and far more integrating. And I think people forget that. They're afraid to undergo the passage of change and disturbance because the human mind keeps boxing everything as if it's an absolute, as if things last forever, and they don't. Everything is changing. One of my favorite stories is about this seeker who goes to the master and he says, Master, Master, I've been following your teachings every day and I, I try so hard and I meditate and still there's no bliss. Why? What is wrong with me? And the master just looks and says, this will pass. Uh-huh. And so the student thinks, great, great, okay, it's going to change soon. I'll just keep practicing he goes back and he practices and ta-da, oh, oh, the bliss, oh, the wonder, oh, the sweet joy. And he's so overjoyed with this bliss and light. He goes to the master, he says, master, thank you so much. Thank you. I have arrived in bliss. And the master looks and he says, this too will pass. <laughs> well, that's a good story. But we do arrive at something which seems to abide, do we not? Things come and go, but a sort of a foundation gets built, which doesn't come yes. and go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's the, yeah, the recognition of that which is unchanged. But I guess that little story kind of warns us against the attachment to the phenomenon right, on right. the surface. Yeah. That we mistake our sense of self or reality for that instead of recognizing the underlying nature I think it might also warn us against that little story, warn us against the sort of the I'm done syndrome where people have some breakthrough and then they feel, ha ha, I'm done. Okay, now I should go out and save the world or something. And I can pretty much do anything I want now because I'm perfect. And it's not me doing it anyway. I see this stuff. Personally, I think it's a much more healthy attitude to, in a way, always have the attitude of a beginner, you know, always have the, the feeling like I'm a work in progress. Which is not to say you're always going to be chasing the dangling carrot and never feeling fulfilled, but there's always room for enrichment, depth, clarity, stabilization, integration, refinement. And change, change. And and 
evolving because even if one is fully awake and aware of the true nature of existence, the way in which we are experiencing or living or sharing that whole journey is constantly evolving and changing. Has that full awakeness, if there is such a thing, is it as clear as it could conceivably be? Is it as integrated as it could possibly be into our relative life? Have all of our various faculties blossomed in their, in their fullest possible potential? I don't think so. Because it can always be expressed in so many more ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back to our central theme, the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California, which I've been going to for about 10 years now, the theme of this coming year's conference is going to be living and dying. And I'm thinking of giving my talk about the following, which is that if you look at the science without necessarily having in your awareness every possible trick that nature might have up its sleeve. But if you look at the science, a good argument can be made that we're really heading for a a difficult time, primarily due to climate change. There are some people, Catherine Ingram is one whom I've I've interviewed, and she lives in Australia now, actually, Byron Bay, who feel like we're heading for extinction and it's not going to be that far off. So we should just adjust our our psychology to that. And if you read a long, beautifully written article that she wrote, she lays it out pretty logically. Okay, this is going to happen. There are these tipping points. The methane is releasing. The ice caps are going to melt and all this stuff's going to happen. There's going to be mass migrations. And you can't say with certainty that she's wrong. And there are people you know, like Greta Thunberg and others who really seem to feel it acutely and are blowing the trumpet. And I think that in the absence of an end game, Hail Mary pass, which is a football term, by nature, by the divine, they would be right. But I just have the feeling that this spiritual awakening, which seems to be epidemic in the world, yet subtle, not so blatant as so many things, is going to somehow save the day. That somehow it's going to, not not absolutely necessarily, but could very well bring about just what is needed in order to avert the kind of catastrophe that people see coming. I mentioned the sand conference because I, this, I want to sort of talk about this next year and play with how it could actually do that. What is it about spiritual awakening that could avert catastrophe? So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess what I observe is two different dynamics that are co-occurring. We have an upward spiral of this awakening movement that certainly there's a far greater percentage of our populace on the planet that are more awake and at will seeking greater awakening. And then on the other end of the scale, we have this deepening movement into the misinformation, the lies, the ego, the corruption, um, the distortion, the control, etc. And and it's like this momentum is happening. Like polarities are increasing. Mm -hmm. And the ego will go to its nth degree before it turns around. You know, we know that, that we take ourselves to the absolute depth of an experience before we're done with it. So in general, that's the nature of the ego. And my observation is that it's much more nuanced than it's going to be, oh, you know, spirituality is going to save the day or, oh, we're going to completely collapse. I think our world and existence is far too complex 
in its makeup and nature to say it's going to be an absolute one or the other. I see that there are going to be differing examples of each extreme and things in between happening on the planet. So I see that there are some places and, and populations that are going to evolve into a more conscious model. You know, we, we have eco-villages that are developing governance systems based on conscious principles. And then we're going to see other parts of the world that are just going to collapse into absolute anarchy and maybe there's going to be entire populations that vanish. Yeah, so, I don't know how I know this, but I, ha- I have a feeling that you're right. That's my intuitive sense. And obviously, even in terms of, well, you can think of examples, if sea level rises two or three feet, and it could rise a lot more than that, but if it's just two or three feet, huge metropolitan areas are going to have to be evacuated. And Mm -hmm. they're going to have to be evacuated in the midst of various other climate catastrophes. The glaciers dry up and the Ganges doesn't flow very much anymore. And there's a huge water shortage and drought in India. And yet Mumbai and Chennai and various huge cities like that have to retreat inland. How is that going to go? Yeah. Yeah, I just see that there's going to be such a vast array of every different type of dynamic happening in the world over the next decade. And so what do we do? Do we stock up on canned goods and bunker ourselves in some kind of underground you know, shelter? I mean, you talk about these little communities, but can they really be insulated or isolated from the rest of society? Well, at this stage, no, not entirely. And look, everyone will choose their own way of coping or responding or creating. And my own recommendation is that whatever we are doing is that we begin to look at the underpinning principles and dynamics of life itself that actually bring life together, that creates wholeness and growth and thriving, not just surviving. And if we start to realign ourselves with those principles, we'll begin to access imaginations, solutions, new ways of living and creating that we can't yet imagine because we're not accessing all of the points of information that we need. And so for those of you who might be interested in what I'm really talking about, this is in a work I'm delivering called The Four Pillars of Law. And it's looking at the core principles that underpin all Indigenous life. And the central tenet that that revolves around is All life is interconnected. So everything is interconnected. And when we know and understand that and we look at the four paradigms in which that is made known, which is first and foremost, earth, nature, place, country, our relationship with it, second, relationship, kinship, not just ourself with our our human family that we're born into, but all the living creatures that are part of our environment. Thirdly, is our soul or our self, the underlying essential spirit of all things, all creation, that within ourself as equally within all life. And fourthly, the cosmos, the patterns of the cosmos, so the relationship between microcosm and macrocosm. And when we know and understand that, we recognise cause and effect and therefore we recognise the necessity of a commitment to our responsibility not just to ourself, but to all life. And so if we understand 
these four principles and we start to restore our relationships with them more consciously and model education and model systems that incorporate a relationship that unifies all of those in our life, we begin to generate a totally different dynamic. And it's well known in Indigenous wisdom and law that they are four primary threads within the fabric of our wellness. When one of them is severed, the fabric is weakened. When two are severed, it starts to fall apart. When three are severed, it begins to collapse. When four are severed, it's done. And what we're seeing in society is actually we've been breaking up all four of them. And so we wonder why our society and systems are collapsing. That is why, because we've actually severed and fractured these relationships drastically. The thing we were talking about earlier regarding, uh, you know, the more disconnected from self or from one's inner nature, the more one suffers and therefore the stronger the incentive or impetus to rediscover our inner nature. I suppose a dynamic like that may play out in the world and perhaps may it even be responsible for the fact that there's this upwelling of, of interest in spirituality in the world. Perhaps it is due to the fact that life as it has been lived has been so unsatisfactory and is becoming more so. Absolutely. I, I agree 100% with that. But boy, there's yeah. some people who really dig their heels in, aren't there? Half the politicians <laughs> in the United States, one particular party, for the most part, <laughs> denies climate change. And Trump says it's a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese to gain some economic advantage. So they completely disregard science and they craft policy accordingly. Trump has, yeah. has reversed and dismantled so many environmental things. He just now, just today, the news came out that there's some beautiful wild areas in Utah that he's going to open up to mining and other kinds of economic exploitation. So I no. have an interesting theory on this. I don't totally agree that these politicians and leaders are actually as, in as much total in denial, denial as they say they are. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't believe they're actually in total denial and mm -hmm. totally disagree. In fact, I believe a lot of their activity is because underneath it, they do know it is real, but there is an extreme attachment to the way things are. There is so much invested for them in the way things are that they are doing absolutely everything possible to protect that and to prevent a change I think so, you're right. I mean, that's what the, cons the word conservative means, basically, is trying to conserve or maintain the status quo and not let things change. <laughs> yeah, Whereas yeah. the word progressive, which is its antonym, is, is let's progress, let's change, you know. Yeah, and, and I, I yeah. think there needs to be a counterbalance. There needs to be a sort of a, a healthy relationship between the two. But at the moment, I think it's way swung to the other mm -hmm. extreme. Mm -hmm. There's another angle to this as well. And that is that there's certainly a part of these minds that don't get it. And this comes back to the makeup. I was talking about this difference between a more indigenous mind compared to a modern human mind or a more spiritual mind compared to a materialistic mind. 
So the spiritual or indigenous mind has connectedness. It, it, it actually has a connective relationship with life and it's able to see and feel and experience the interconnectedness. Whereas a modern human mind has actually been narrowed in and dumbed down to be disconnected and stuck in very narrow pathways of thinking. So the modern human mind and the materialistic mind is actually working in that mindset and therefore doesn't feel, see, know, experience the interconnectedness. So a lot of our politicians and leaders literally are incapable of truly understanding and comprehending the gravity of our situation or the reality of our situation or the relationship between coal and what really is happening in our environment. But they just cannot and they don't want to. So you've got two things coupled there. One is the absolute will against it because they're very attached to the way things are. And the other is the inability to get it, to really deeply get it. And that points to a very, very important catalyst for the change we're seeking. And that is our hearts, love, kindness, and empathy. Because unless we create an experience of connectedness with each other and environment, we don't have a direct personal emotional relationship with it. And we can't care. And that's why our current models of politics cannot and will not work because they are centralised. And when things are centralised, they're disconnected. It's not a connected fabric. Indigenous societies lived in, in small clans. Governance was local and emotional relationship and connectedness with what is actually happening and therefore a deeply heartfelt sense of responsibility. We radically need to reawaken this throughout all societies. And that means we're going to have to consider decentralized government. Wow. There's a lot to discuss there. Let's keep going. There's an American author who's (laughs) since deceased a long time ago named Upton Sinclair, who wrote a book called The Jungle, which is about the meatpacking industry and the horrors of that. And um, he's famous for some saying that something like you can't convince a man of something if his income depends on not believing it, something like that. I don't know how it is in Australia, but most of the American senators and members of the House of Representatives have to spend most of their time trying to raise money in order to get elected the next time around. They spend hours and hours and hours on the phone and they have to kiss up to all these big donors, many of whom are the oil industry and the pharmaceutical industry and and things like that. There are more lobbyists in Washington, D.C. than there are politicians. And lobbyists come with, you know, big pocketbooks saying, I'll give you money if you, you know, do my thing. And so they're bound in like that. And rather than paint the lobbyists and the industries they represent as demons, look at it from their perspective. They're thinking of the next quarter. They're beholden to their shareholders. The next Mm -hmm. quarterly profits have to look good. And if the oil industries have five times the amount of oil ready to drill, then we can allow to be burned if we want to stay below Mm -hmm. two degrees centigrade. Well, who knows if that's really true? You know, I mean, that's so far off. And decades from now, I think we can go ahead and burn it. 
I need to make the shareholders happy, so let's go to Alaska. Hey, and it's great. The ice is melting at the uh, in the Arctic. Now we can drill in more places. You know, so this is <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of weird, short-term myopic uh, logic that drives yeah. it. It's just what you were saying that the mind has been narrowed down, and the, you know they're like a horse in a race with blinders on that can't kind of see that they could run other places. They have to just run on this track, leading them uh-huh. towards who knows what. Yeah, yeah, and that's fundamentally materialism. So that's largely, unfortunately, part of the human makeup now at large, you know, that most humans have been overtaken by materialistic values, you know, as if that's our God, that's our measure of comfort, success, happiness, security, and along with it has come the more mind. So separation creates fear and where there is fear there's a need to possess and control and so if we're seeking to possess and control we're going to look to accumulate and acquire so that's materialism in a circle right yeah here's a quote from your now, book you said through fear we seek to protect ourselves and provide for our own individual needs we don't believe we have enough for ourselves let alone for anyone else so exactly. God forbid that anyone should come along and say that wealth should be redistributed or, you know, that, that everyone should get health care or something like that. Exactly. And I'm going to go again to comparison between indigenous spiritual mindset compared to modern human materialistic mindset. Indigenous people, it is we. We don't see separate me and you. Now, I can use that language because I recognize there's a, a unique you. And my fundamental experience is we. It's a whole collective. So Indigenous people operate as a collective. It's we. And everything is owned by the we. Whereas materialistic, it's me versus you. I I think Bernie Sanders' campaign slogan is actually something like, not me, us. Not me, we. He even has that on his bus, I think. However, you think about it, even though... Even spiritual people have the knowledge of this and the intention of this. Most people are not living as if this is true because we're caught in a system where we are controlled by a materialistic model, which means we have to keep protecting our own assets, protect our own survival needs, etc. And that's also generated this subconscious more mind. And so even, for example, the whole the manifestation kind of uh, movement. It's, it's based on this mind. I yeah. want, I want, yeah. I want, I want, I want. And what is really deeply needed and critical on the planet is a shift back to sufficiency mindset. So indigenous mind, it was sufficient. Everything belonged to everyone. We didn't have to fight and argue over who owned what part of the land because No one owned it. It was the collective reality. Mm. And if we continue down this track of trying to protect more and not reestablishing a recognition of what we truly need, what is truly sufficient and what is of actual substance and value to our life, to our wellness, to our happiness, we're just going to continue creating false models. Yeah, well, it's very evident in the collective consciousness that there's a, um, 
a frenzy to acquire many things which we don't really need. It's, it's particularly evident at Christmas time where they always do news stories about the, the riots at the stores where people are fighting over the latest big screen TV or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. People sleep on the sidewalk for three days to, get, to be the first to get the latest iPhone. And it's a never-ending chase. You know, you get that object and then you're told, oh, no, there's something newer and better and bigger and fancier. And, and you get that object and it doesn't really satisfy one's deepest needs anyway. So there's this emptiness still, there's this sense of lack still, and then something else shiny gets dangled in front of you. Oh, maybe that'll do it. Yeah, you know, nope. it's almost the addictive mindset. I mean, you get a buzz when you get the new iPhone and, ooh, this is, this is nice. And then after a few days, it's like, eh, you know, like you say, some new model comes <laughs> along or something. But people live for that sugar. It's like a sugar high that you get from uh-huh. eating this and get doing that and doing that and always going for the next sugar high. And then it, it always fades. The next thing you know, you're cranky. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think really life itself is going through a process of reawakening us to that, you know, that, again, it's, it's an inbuilt design. It's foolproof. We actually cannot fulfill ourselves through material possessions. It's impossible. And so eventually we are going to be smothered by it to the point where we suffocate and we, we completely lose our life as a result of it, or we are woken up to realize that's not it. Yeah. You've alluded to um, little self-contained communities, uh, you know, living ecologically. And you, a few minutes ago, you spoke of decentralized government. Do you feel that actually a time will come in some, I don't know how long, a decade, two decades, where that becomes quite prevalent and governments have been decentralized? Or do you think that people will just sort of go off the grid and, and live in their own little communities, despite the fact that they still live in the United States or Australia or someplace? Sure. I think the same answer applies here when we were talking about, is it going to be complete collapse or is spirituality going to save the day? It's going to be very nuanced. There are going to be a lot of different examples and versions and degrees of these possibilities. I do believe uh, I'm already working on and with groups that are involved in redesigning governance models and involved in eco-village development. And I see that there are going to be within the next decade, well-developed existing decentralized villages, for want of a better term, and potentially even nations that take on that structure. Which one in the northern European in is Scandinavia, it? Um, Greenland, Norway Scandinavia, or Denmark, or one of those places you know, aims to be yeah. completely alternative energy based. Yeah, in a certain, they're, certain they're really, heading in that direction. Yeah, and Germany and, is and doing then, very well with that. Yeah. So, and look. You know, I know that there's a lot of controversy around it and, and a lot of people don't fully understand it, etc. But this whole blockchain development, cryptocurrency development Bitcoin is an example of this emerging mindset that there's this recognition that actually centralised systems are closed systems and are doomed from the start because existence is not actually a closed system. It's an open system. So that is an example of this emerging mindset. 
of being decentralised in the way we work with our resources and um, develop our systems. That's interesting. Another thought that comes to mind is that, um, you also alluded to this, is that we have tremendous untapped potential. Last week, I interviewed a woman who specializes in studying autistic savants and people who have these incredible abilities, like being able to sit there and recite pi to 22,000 digits, you know, or sit down and play Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, having heard it only once and never taken piano lessons and things like that. So human beings have amazing abilities. And I don't know whether it's somehow inherent in our brains or actually our brains are, are an interface to a larger field of information and intelligence, which I think is the case. But if we develop these marvelous instruments that we each own sufficiently, it seems to me that all kinds of marvelous um, innovations and technologies in, in every field, uh, politics, sociology, alternative energy, and so on, which we can't even imagine yet, will blossom. Totally. Now, there's a few little things I'd like to expand on from that because that's that's a great little topic to investigate. So this untapped potential. So firstly, we know that the, the human brain operates through different modes or frequencies. And in general, we know there's beta, alpha, beta, delta brainwave activity. We know that if we operate at certain brainwave states, we get certain experiences. And so meditation corresponds with alpha, beta, and even delta. But there's another brainwave state called gamma, and that is an activity state where we've gone into entrainment and we've accessed a higher frequency. And all of a sudden, our range of consciousness or access to intelligence expands dramatically. And Albert Einstein was very plugged into that. He deliberately put himself into gamma brainwave states. By the way, this is some of the stuff that I've taught through programs like Mastering Meditation so people can deliberately access and use these different brainwave states. But there's another factor that is really important to recognise and that is that because we're still primarily operating in this mindset of me, the isolated human, we've actually lost the way that nature evolves and exchanges information. So again, comparing with Indigenous minds, learning was actually experiential, direct, connective development, which means it involved the entire landscape, the environment and all of the people and all of the animals and creatures and the cosmos. And so there was this massive channeling in and connecting of information and by way of absolute present moment engagement naturally indigenous people were experiencing and activating gamma states of brain activity so for example if you're focused on creating a tool and you're so completely present, creating that tool, you're shaving down that wood, you're in such an occupied state that there's this greater sensitivity and information comes in. But the point I'm making here is that we're oftentimes attempting to arrive at these 
higher illuminations in isolation. And we haven't yet worked out that if we recreate a way in which we're interacting with the whole environment, with each other, establishing a deeper connected relationship with life, the cosmos, and each other, and activating those states, then we're really going to access some very different imagination, new possibilities that we haven't even begun to imagine. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of alluding to the hundredth monkey principle here, where once a certain threshold is reached, once a certain percentage of society has begun to access these states, or whatever we want to call them, there could be a, a kind of radical shift in the collective. Yeah, a leap of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think a lot of people feel when they hear of indigenous people and their their wisdom and so on, they think, yeah, that was cool. And, and wow, the Hopi Indians, they had a profound attunement to nature and the Bushmen of South Africa and the Aborigines of Australia and so on. They think, I wouldn't want to live like that. I mean, I don't want to sit in the dirt and loincloth and have to go out hunting for breakfast and that kind of thing. I mean, there's so many modern technologies and comforts. And so I think many people would hope that somehow we can get the best of both worlds. Absolutely. And and that's really what I'm proposing. And I know a lot of my Indigenous brothers and sisters, uncles, aunties and elders all propose as well. You know, we can't go backwards. We're here now. We can only go forwards. However, there are underlying principles that are relevant to all time, all place, all people, all things. And it's in honouring and valuing those and restoring those in the way we are living with life and meeting our challenges and our problems that will lead us forward to work with what we have now, what is serving us, what will continue to serve us, what isn't, what do we need to let go of, and what do we need to restore that is relevant that we know from past experience. So I certainly do not propose for one moment that we're we're meant to abandon our comforts and our modern technology, but rather that we need to instill these unifying and universal principles into our lives. Yeah. I don't think we could abandon our technology. I mean, there's certainly things we could do without and hopefully will do without, but we can't unknow what we know. Even, unfortunately, certain nuclear weapons technology and stuff like that, the the knowledge is there. Unless there's such a complete erasure of the databanks of human knowledge, that that knowledge is always going to be there. So theoretically, someone could take it and build a bomb. But I think that if we can align as a species with higher consciousness, then that knowledge can be thought of as sort of in the dustbin of history and, and we won't conceive of using it. And yet we'll have all kinds of knowledge that we can use that could make life better than it's been for the Aborigines and for modern man. Sort of the best of both can be distilled into something that's that's better than than both, better than either. Sure, sure. Look, um, on that point about even um, nuclear weaponry, war, for example, this is one of the spiritual ideals very often is that we can create a world that is free of violence and that we need to do so. And in my observation, I see that that's actually one of our misguided 
unrealistic hopes because inherent to all nature existence, including the human, is a destructive force. And it's when we deny that and when we don't understand it and live in balance with that destructive force that it actually becomes either suppressed or concentrated. When it's suppressed, it becomes internally destructive, and when it is concentrated, it becomes, well, explosively destructive. So if we don't live in a state of balance individually and then at a smaller scale collectively with our destructive tendencies or the destructive qualities of life, then we're actually living a delusional pathway imagining that we can somehow live without an element of violence and destruction. It's unrealistic. Creation is destructive. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't exist unless stars had lived out their life cycles and had exploded as supernova and spewed out heavier elements throughout, throughout the galaxies, throughout the universe. And you know, that were, you know, as Joni Mitchell saying, we're stardust. So mm-hmm. destruction serves a, a purpose, as does death. We mm-hmm. wouldn't live very long if cells were not continually dying and you know being mm-hmm. regenerated within our own bodies, and neither would the earth be a very pleasant place for very long if no one ever died, <laughs> uh, and yet they kept procreating. Uh, it would it would get a bit boring actually. <laughs> yeah, get a bit crowded. It seems to me that there's a proper balance of destructive and creative forces, which. Um, and then there's an improper balance, and and these days the, uh, the you know the destructive is too predominant or something that it just or it hasn't been channeled in a way that that's really benign as uh, as it could be. Yeah, and that's because of the imbalance. Either there's a denial of that destructive force, or there's a possession of it and a concentration of it. And so what we're seeing is exactly that that we think, oh, if I don't, you know kill this animal to sustain my life, I'm doing good. And I, I'm not suggesting we should farm in an inhumane manner, but that there's a circle to all life. Right. And we we are consumed, consumer, consuming, you know, that that's part of the circle. And the thing is, if we're avoiding that, we're displacing that element of destruction and it's actually placed on someone else. That destructive element then can you give us an example of that? Of another person. For instance, are you saying something like, well, if we don't kill our own cow in order to have food, then we're hiring somebody else to do it for us? Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying something different? Well, that's one example. There's also the example that, um, you know, we, okay, sure, um, uh, eating, consuming plants, farming with plants is apparently measured to have less impact environmentally. Nonetheless, thousands of insects are still killed in in the process of farming plants, for example, and the way we go about that is displacing something somewhere. When we live in a peaceful society and, and we deny our own destructive tendencies and and we don't own up to that we allow another country to assert a concentrated force onto a different country and this is where we see these regimes of dominance arising because actually that ownership and and the balance of you know the shadow self is not sitting at a stable 
present level equitably in ourselves individually and as a society. So envision for us a society in which it was properly balanced and the destructive and creative forces were in proper proportion. How would that look? How would that play out? Well, again, I, I would imagine that we're living much more in accord with the natural forces that we see the sacred relationship between all things and we respect it rather than abuse it. And so I see that it's not so much what we eat that's the problem, it's our relationship with life resources that is the problem. That's one example. Yeah. So if we restore a sense of sacred respect and balance to the way we actually live, the resources we use, for example, you know, come back to a sufficient mindset, then we're not going to be greedy and we're not going to rape and pillage the planet. We're going to live in you know, greater harmony, for example, permaculture. Um, there's also free-roaming animal farming, you know, where, you know, if we raise livestock in a manner that is free-roaming, it doesn't use anywhere near the resources or create the devastation that our current farming models do. Very true. I mean, I have a friend named Phil Escott who's been on this show who is a carnivore and um, advocates that diet for those who for pretty much, he thinks it would be good for everybody. But he, he says, you know, it would, it would be so restorative of the land to allow ruminants to just wander around on the land. Like the in the U.S., that we used to have, you know, millions of, of bison or buffalo roaming the, the prairies. Mm-hmm. And there was, mm-hmm. you know, thick, deep, rich topsoil. These days, it's all grow corn, grow soybeans, feed a lot of it to the animals so that we can eat them. And the topsoil has been depleted and depleted mm-hmm. to the point where, mm-hmm. you know, at the current pace, it will be un- unusable some decades. But actually, you know, really, we're going to have to address the elephant in the room at some point, And that is that we can be talking about all of these issues we're dealing with and how to adjust ourselves with um, farming resources, consumption, etc. And, you know, we're constantly going around in circles because of the dilemma of actually population, the human population. We are overpopulated. Yeah. And as a consequence, we're not able to live in a greater balance with the environment because actually there's too many of us occupying the space and too many mouths needing, you know, more consumption and so how how can we actually restore a balance when actually the react ratio of human occupancy on the planet compared to a natural ecological system is out of whack? Well, it's interesting. I'll pop in a question here from um, Melissa in Perth, who just said who just sent in a question. How, how do you see sufficiency mindset working today? Perhaps easier with smaller numbers of people and with nature's resources respected. Now nature's resources are either under strain with the demands of population and providing for a global, a global population. Is sufficiency mindset enough given the global population? Yeah, I've just alluded to that point, haven't I? Yeah. And, and I see that that, like I say, I call it the elephant in the room because who really does want to go there and admit the fact that we are actually overpopulated and what are we really going to do about it? If all the unfertile places in the world were fertile, then perhaps we could sustain this kind of population. I don't know. And perhaps there could be a, an adjustment to the environment through alignment with natural law that would render a lot of inhospitable places fertile. 
But on the other hand, the coronavirus is spreading. Uh, we were talking about what might happen if you know sea level rises or if temperature rises. If temperature rises to six degrees centigrade, we're all dead. But if it rises to three degrees, it could kill off hundreds of millions of people, billions, actually. I don't mean to sound gleeful about that, but it, it would be a horrific, no, no, no. horrific process. But if population really does need to be reduced, and if we're shifting into a world in which, which is going to be ideal in terms of its, its numbers of occupants and all of its other practices, perhaps there will be some kind of catastrophic reduction of population that, that takes place. Well, it's, it's one of the things that has been prophesied. It has, actually, through, yeah. Yeah, through many Indigenous um, societies, and not just Indigenous societies, but some of our prophets or... Edgar Casey, people like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sense is that it's inevitable in some degree that there, there are going to be some reductions and readjustments in terms of human population as well as what's happening with our environment. And I don't mean to say this in a way that sounds cold, but rather from the perspective of just purely what is, observing what is. Nature existence is not precious. It's not attached to any one thing or place. And uh, I think humans have become way too precious and attached to our own existence and uh, our own supposed superiority yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) well nature wasn't attached to the dinosaurs they were doing fine for a couple hundred million years and all of a sudden an asteroid Mm -hmm. came along and boom Mm -hmm. changed the page and i'm sure that in this vast universe that happens on a regular basis to planets populated by beings much more highly evolved than dinosaurs Um, so Mm -hmm. it, it could happen suddenly it could happen slowly and um we have a very constrained vision of our history. So, I, look, I think importantly here is to strike a balance between an acceptance and a, an acknowledgement for the much bigger picture and a surrender and a trust in that and also hope that we can respond consciously and with greater imagination and with love. We can bring love and new vision to what is happening in the world And each of us who consider ourselves on a spiritual journey are central to that. Our own ability to recognise ourselves, each other and the nature of existence is allowing us to access a greater love and a more conscious response to what is happening in the world. Yeah. What you said, those of us who consider ourselves on a spiritual journey, I was once on a a boat ride on Lake Lucerne with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in like 1974. And we were talking about this topic of the society radically shifting and kind of a possibly cataclysmic phase transition in the world. And someone said, well, how can we survive that? How can we survive the phase transition? And he said, hold on to the self. And what he meant by that was, you know, get in touch with your innermost nature and then mm-hmm. come hell or high water, no matter what happens, you'll have a foundation. You know, mm-hmm. you may move on to another plane of existence. You may stay on this plane, but whatever happens, you'll be rooted in that which is indestructible. Absolutely. That is it. And that's the way that we ultimately know peace and our ability to respond emerges from that. 
So, you know, oftentimes people kind of think, oh, it's a resignation, you know, if we say, well, it is the way it is. No, it's not a resignation. It's a, a recognition. And when we know our true self, we have a poise in the midst of that. You know, it's, it's both trust and surrender and acceptance of what is and what will be and this incredible, loving, conscious capacity to respond and to respond here now because that's all we have. We can only respond here now. So it's not who am I, it's what am I. What am I this moment? I am energy. I am love. I am consciousness. I'm present here. Yeah, it's interesting in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Arjuna said, well, I don't want to fight this battle. And Krishna said, well, you have to fight this battle. This battle has to be fought. In fact, I've already killed all these warriors. You just have to actually act it out. And Arjuna was saying, I'm not going to do it. But then finally they came around to the point, Krishna said, established in yoga, established in union, perform action. And then you'll be acting in accordance with dharma. You'll be doing the right thing, even though on the surface, some might, some people might say it's the wrong thing. So you know, this whole thing of, we were talking about destruction earlier, this, this, whatever our role is, I think if we're truly, not just intellectually or in some mood, if we're truly established in, in the self, capital S, uh, then we will act out that role in accordance with nature's uh, intelligence or intentions. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, it points to the, the tendency for the, the mind to want to preempt to define things and say oh right if this happens then that's what I'm going to do and oh if I'm going to do that then if ever I meet that in another moment I'm going to do the same thing (laughs) no you know it's like well what does what does a, a yogi do in the moment he's confronted by a scorpion you know in one moment there might be a scorpion there and there's a little child two feet away and the the yogi will just instantly stomp on the scorpion. In another moment, the scorpion is there and he just waits. He stands still and the scorpion just moves away. And it's not that there is a right or a wrong. There's just this moment with awareness. Right, which points to the principle of spontaneous right action. Just you can't intellectually calculate all the ramifications of any action but if you're attuned to that level of intelligence which is orchestrating the whole universe (laughs) and acting in accordance with that then action can actually be as perfect as if you did have all the information in the universe even though you don't you just act in accordance with it on intuitive impulse and it turns out to be the right thing yep absolutely absolutely yeah. Just tell you a little story about the yogi and the scorpion. So there was this, this is a little bit of a topic change, <laughs> but there was a yogi sitting by a ditch and a scorpion had fallen in and was drowning. And so he lifted the scorpion out, put it on dry land and the scorpion stung him. And then the scorpion crawled back into the ditch and it was drowning again. So he, he did it again. And somebody observed him doing that, said, what are you doing? The scorpion keeps stinging you over and over again. Why don't you just leave it there? And he said, it's his nature to sting. It's my nature to save. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a bit about uh, what you have to offer. I know that um, 
we've been in touch with uh, Lilani, and she was saying that you know you'll set up some page where people who have listened to this interview can click through and get some kind of discount on your your courses or something. If people are feeling inspired to get involved in what you're offering, what is that, and what would that involvement entail? Sure. So the um, the primary platform that you can engage with everything I'm doing now is called the Awakening Place, and um, that's where you can join in for free the regular talks that I offer at a deeper level. You know, if you actually join membership, you you get the highlights of talks, you get to access the body of works that I've produced as content and products and programs, etc. There's a huge amount of content in there. So it's uh, hours and hours and hours of interesting discoveries and support really for your own journey to find that deeper connection in yourself and to make sense of this whole journey because let's face it, it it's not always easy to navigate or to understand how and why we are experiencing what we are and and how to align ourselves in a different way how to come back to our true nature so on the one hand we know all sages all teachers say the same thing that Fundamentally, it's very simple. In truth and principle, it's simple, but in practice, it's complex. And so that platform is a way for you to discover multiple tools to understand that process for yourself and to take more steps into being uh, more consciously present. So that's the awakening place. And then, of course, there's um, the book. So my latest book, the most recently published one called Awakening You. Really, it's a compendium and it outlines the root conflict of all humanity. So what is underlying, what's the root cause of all conflict and then the six symptoms of conflict and how it's relevant to every single one of us. And so it draws a circle around our individual self and how we got into a state of conflict to start with and how that trickles through from ourself into relationships, into our relationship with the environment and resources and as a collective society and then what's happening on the earth and really what our quest is now, how we can address that, how we can navigate our way to a place of restoration. And then the other thing is take a look at the website because there's some new material on the website that you may not have seen before it's more current that is um, the regeneration work the the campaign like I say that's it's a collaborative campaign to bring more and more people together unified on that same quest we all have to regenerate um, what is happening in our lives and in the world and the four pillars of law great you know, a lot of spiritual teachers and spiritual people these days talk about integration and embodiment, which I think means integrating the depths of our experience into our relative life, into all facets and phases of it. So I think mm-hmm. you're a great example of someone who's doing that, not only in terms of your individual life, but in terms of all these societal things that we've been talking about and ecological things and so on. Because ultimately, I think that this ocean of inner potential is the nourishment 
which all aspects of life draw upon to sustain themselves. But unfortunately, in most cases, the, the flow of nutrients is, is really minuscule, but it can come as a, as a flood or something if we, if we manage to build the connections that are needed into all the manifest aspects of politics and economics and agriculture and technology and military and everything else. Um, so totally. it seems like yeah. you're really uh, on the forefront of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and look, it is, it's a challenging time. Um, you know, life certainly, uh, I'm faced with challenges. We all are. And, you know, you, you hit on that really relevant point earlier, and that is we all continue evolving. Um, but at the same time as it being challenging, it is exciting. It, it's, it's an incredible time to be alive and to be expanding our awareness because always at the time of great, great crisis and challenge is a time of incredible possibility and opportunity. And that's my message now is that, you know, continue to believe in yourself. Know that although it doesn't always seem like you are progressing and you're oftentimes feeling like you're thwarted by these underlying conditions you have in yourself or you see around you in society, your connection to your inner self and your knowing of that awareness is going to carry you all the way. It is the compass for you, for all of us, and we're in that together. So the the more we encourage each other in that and acknowledge that and honour that, Mm. the better because that's what we need now more than anything. Very important. And you just kind of said it, but find like-minded souls. You know, they're out there. And if you live in the mm-hmm. boondocks someplace, then you can find them online these days because it really does help to have a, kind of a community of people who are on the same wavelength, whether, totally. you, whether you're with them physically in the same spot or you're connected with them yeah, yeah, yeah. Electronically. I think that's so important. We are not alone. Yeah. You are not alone. You're not isolated. And I love the way you call it the boondocks here in Australia. <laughs> we have a similar term, but it's whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. You know, uh. you're out in whoop whoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was actually one of my initial motivations for starting this thing is, is I was meeting people who, even though I live in a fairly spiritual community where a lot of people meditate, I was meeting people who had undergone an awakening and they they would tell friends and the friends wouldn't believe them because they seemed like the same old person they've always known so i kind of wanted to get the message out there that this is happening to people and that they don't have to appear to be floating two feet off the ground or uber special it's happening to ordinary people and therefore it can happen to you exactly and look after all we are all human you know it's really really important that we dispel a lot of the the old baggage that goes along with spirituality and teaches as if it's, you know, you're meant to kind of look at someone sitting up on some great big pedestal or throne and it's all so numinous and ethereal and beyond human. And it's not. It's it's not. We have to really embrace the truth that this whole process of awakening is about really being with what is real and bringing that imminent consciousness into ourself and into the world. It's not about escaping it. Yeah. It's, it's about being here. <laughs> well, we could go on all night. Every time you say something, I think of several other things that we could talk <laughs> about, but um, we should probably wrap it up. And uh, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. 
Me too. Thank you so much, Rick. And it's just wonderful the work you're doing. You know, what a great opportunity and uh, platform for people to um, hear more of these different experiences and journeys and, you know, reflecting back how really it's the same for all of us. We're in it together. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, it's a pleasure. So um, those who have been listening or watching, Isaira will have a page on BatGap, as all the interviewees do. And from there, you'll find links to her website and, and some of the things she's spoken about, her books. And while you're on the website, poke around a bit. You'll see that there's a link to an audio podcast. There's a several other interesting things under the the menus just explore and you'll find what we have to offer next week i'll be speaking with i think it's roger walsh who um has come very highly recommended so stay tuned and we'll see you for the next one thanks asara thanks rick have a good day over there and you have a happy now yes moment to moment yeah (laughs) that tends to be the way it is (laughs) fantastic all right take care you too much love much love to you